Well, this afternoon, being the first Sunday of the month, we are in Psalm 39. We sung a song that is a paraphrase of Psalm 39 earlier, the new song that we sung, sang. The new song that we had sung, how's that? So today we're going to be in Psalm 39. Before we proceed forward, let us hear from God's holy word. To the choir master, to Yeduthin, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace in my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard this, your word, and we pray that you would help us to receive it as such. Your holy word, speaking to us, your will. We ask that you would guide us, O Lord, as we study what we have just read. We ask that you would help us to receive your truth. Help us that we might be molded by your truth. Give us, O Lord, a clear revelation of Jesus Christ from your word. Would you guide this preacher, chain him to your word, that it might freely declare the truth, and so to be clear and accurate and understandable. May that which he says be true to your word, so to be the word of God. So we ask, O Lord, that from your word today, you would speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach this psalm, it is a series of psalms in which we see various different types of lament. That is, that is of expressing grief, of expressing despair, of expressing despondency of various different sorts. That is actually one of the frequent themes of the psalms as we walk through them is lament expressing concern, expressing sadness. When we look at the Psalms, as we've mentioned before, we see a portrait of realism and reality. So often we are afraid to bear ourselves as we are really thinking and feeling before the Lord and before one another And we try to put on a face of all is well, all is okay. As we've said before, one of the greatest lies today 
and not just today, but for many, 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 many years in many different languages is fine and you. In this particular psalm that we're looking at today, being a lament, we saw the previous psalm, there's reference to enemies and, and bearing lament with regards to oneself and his own sin. In this psalm, we see that he is again overcome with the guilt of sin and the weight of his sin. And here, it, the sin has to do specifically with something regarding his tongue. He spoke in a way that was rash. He held his tongue until he could hold it no more. And he goes before the Lord here in repentance. In this particular psalm, many psalms end with some sort of resolution, of a sense of joy and hope, of a sense of, my hope is in you, and I trust that you are going to do right. This psalm is one of those psalms of lament that does not resolve. It does not resolve in a sense of, all, is, all will be well. It resolves in a sense of this. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It ends on a note of a realistic, a realistic concern, a realistic prayer. Just something we learn from the Psalms is the importance of being real and realistic before the Lord our God. Expressing to Him our concerns, expressing to him our fears. And if we say, well, I'm not afraid of anything, you are, and we are liars. Expressing our despairs, and we say, well, there's nothing of which I despair, we are liars. There are many things that disturb us. And in the Psalms, we see this openness and this realism. One of the glories and beautiful things about that I, I love about Reformed theology is the fact there is a strong realism that says we are sinners and we struggle with sin and we have an advocate to whom we can be for and we can lay out these things and say, I am lost, I am despondent, and I might even be a little angry with you. And I'm sorry for that, forgive me. Being real and expressing. And David, in the Psalms, all of those things are there. We must make room for that. The 88th Psalm, I recommend you go read that. And in our piety, if we don't have room for the 88th Psalm, or Psalms like this, we need to rethink our piety a little bit. And our honesty before God, before ourselves, and before one another. Enough on that, though into this psalm we can see also in this psalm the forgiveness and work of christ in how he who was reproached how he did not reproach in return and he did not lash out and in so doing he suffered for us poor sinners thus we have forgiveness and righteousness and again like many psalms it's very difficult to break this down into some sort of a structure uh, because as there are as many different structures as there are commentaries. In fact, I would say there's more structures than there are commentaries because there's some who say, well, it could be this way, it could be this way, it could be that way. But the way we'll be looking at this today is verses 1 through 3. We'll be seeing the situation that he's laying out. In verses 3 through 6, we're going to see his prayer of humility and his prayer of openness before the Lord. In verses 7 through 11, we see an expression of hope. And in verses 12 and 13, we have him closing, expressing his desires. And his desire that the Lord might lift his hand from him. When we look at this psalm in the first few verses, the first three verses, we see a situation laid out. He says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin. With my tongue, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle 
So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. David, in this particular circumstance, is finding him uh, expressing that he is has folks who are around him who are saying bad things, or maybe they are not around him, but bad things are being said of him, most likely unjust things. Accusations coming his way. Evil and reproach is coming towards him. And he said, I am going to guard my mouth. But he is not going to return in kind. How often have we, and if we're honest, we've all done this. Things are coming at us, someone's saying things. And we respond in kind. That is the way they did to us. And thus, sin against the Lord. We have no business returning evil for evil or reproach for reproach. In fact, we'll look at some scriptures that speak about that. John Calvin says of this, yet he refrained, yet he refrained from speaking of his own mere will. He might have encountered the ungodly with a good defense of his own innocence, but he rather preferred to forego the prosecution of his righteous cause than indulge in any intemperate sorrow. That was his desire. That is what he said he would do until he didn't. And in this prayer of repentance and in this prayer of sorrow, he's expressing repentance for that. And we'll talk about that when we get there. We see in the next couple of verses in, uh, through the, in verses 2 and 3, sort of a building up of tension, a building up of pressure, as he describes. Maybe you might have a pressure cooker at home, or you have some other sort of device. I have this little espresso maker at home that goes on the stovetop. Not one with all the steam and that does all the steaming and everything, but goes on the stovetop. And it has a little release valve that in case the pressure is too high. Well, normally I grind my own coffee and use that. But one time I used some pre-ground espresso and I said, well, I'm going to tamp this down and make it all dense. Apparently I wasn't supposed to do that. Well, I put it on the, I put it on the, I put it on the stove and got it going. And I was off doing something else while it was preparing. And next thing you know, I hear this loud whistle coming from it. Well, the pre- it was too much pressure built up and it couldn't get through the coffee and it ha- was releasing the pressure. Well, David was finding himself with an increasing amount of pressure. That is, he, whatever he was facing, we don't know the particular circumstance or whether he's a, just giving a general broad account of things that might happen. In his, in his being silent, in his not returning evil for evil, he describes it this way. I was mute and silent. I held my peace no avail. That is, I held my peace and they just kept going. It just kept coming. And then, my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. We see this buildup of pressure, this buildup of anger and of frustration. He chose, as he should, to not engage in sinful words until he did. But then he says, and then I spoke with my tongue. Now we could look at what he spoke, as some translations uh, seem to indicate, as the prayer. That the speaking that he did was with his prayer. That he went to the Lord and he offered this prayer. That's a relatively new interpretation of this. Historically, this is historically, this is looked at saying in light of something like James or First Peter or Isaiah that he spoke out of turn, so to speak. And I spoke. And now he's going before the Lord acknowledging his own sin, acknowledging the pain and guilt and despair that he is in. But either way, how we look at it, the prayer reads the same. The prayer reads the same. 
we have many scriptures that speak of returning reproach for reproach and how that is something that is off balance for the Christian. Romans twelve fourteen through 21. In that prayer sheet that we had today from our fire church, New City Church in Marion, Ohio, they mentioned how they wish that Romans 12, 9 and following might be more and more true in the life of their church. But let us hear from Romans 12, 14 through 21. He says, Bless those who curse, persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the, with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I remember one time in which many years ago, which many years ago for some might sound a whole lot long ago, but for me many years ago is about 15, 20 years ago. Um, but a good number of years ago, I remember something was happening and I said something I should not have in the circumstance as all of us have in different ways. And this verse came to my mind, and I justified it by saying, well, I was the agent of God's vengeance. But that's a cop-out, my brothers and sisters. He flat out says, do not take vengeance, my friend. Also look at James chapter 3, verses 4 through 12. I would ask you before we go there, what is the strongest muscle in the human body based on its size and its strength, its strength to size ratio? And I said, well, it's my biceps, man. Or it's my pectorals. No. It is our tongue. It is, based on its size to strength ratio, and what it does, the strongest muscle in the human body. It is also, James 3 says, the most destructive muscle in the human body. You may have heard the phrase, you've heard this from me before, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I would say there has never been a greater lie told. Words do harm. Listen to James 3, verses 4 through 12. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That is, do murderous things with our tongues. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The tongue is a difficult instrument to control and David experienced this here in this particular psalm. We have our Lord and if we think David or even ourselves experience some sort of unjust suffering or we might say, oh, but you don't know how unawful it was and how unjust it is. 
it is nowhere near as unjust, in fact, any suffering we experience as Christians. There is always justice to it because we are not without guilt. We're guilty of something. But 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, there was one who truly suffered unjustly. The greatest injustice that was done in the history of humanity was what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ for our redemption. He who had done no evil was treated as an evildoer. He who had no sin suffered as a criminal as a murderer. But 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Praise the Lord that he did that because because of our failures to hold our tongue. He died so that we could be forgiven of those sins. He, he, He who suffered unjustly did so to redeem us. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Our Lord suffered on our behalf and he accepted that. He did not return evil for evil. Because of that, we have found redemption. And so when we find ourselves having blown our top, we can go to him. But we can also see this. We have every reason to exercise patience and not blow our tops. Because of what he has done for us. And David was overcome with immense guilt because of this. We see that in verses 4 through 6 in his prayer. In his verses, yeah, verses 4 through 6 in his prayer of humility. In which he says, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, And my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And then in verses 7 through 11 we see his prayer of seeking God in hope. But in the first couple of verses, one thing he's, he's asking is in light of all this, whether it's him going to the Lord that this is what he spoke or it's how we're looking at it today in terms of him expressing repentance. He is desiring to know this. He wants to know how. He wants to realize how small he is. To realize how in light of eternity, in light of the greatness of God, in light of all that there is, that he is not all Make me to know my end and what the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. 
For when we think of mankind, and we often think of ourselves, we might think of ourselves as something. Something great. Something wonderful. We might look at us collectively, say, look at all the great things we have done. Aren't we quite marvelous? But in reality, in light of eternity, in light of that our days are fleeting. They are short. And in asking to know that, he is basically saying this, help me to know that I am not all that, that I might respond appropriately in these circumstances. To not think of himself more highly than he ought, as we read from Romans chapter 12 just a moment ago. It doesn't take much to realize how, at least in terms of the grandness of all things, how insignificant we are. We can just look out at the night sky and see how much that we can see there and say, yeah, there's a lot there and I'm not, I'm pretty small compared to all that. Or maybe a little closer to home, can head down to uh, to Pialop, I think that's how it's pronounced, and take the road to go up to Paradise and see Mount Rainier up close and see, yeah, that's pretty big. But when we think of the Almighty Creator of the heavens and the earth who created all those things and we look at, look at the grandness of His creation, even that is but a speck compared to Him. So indeed, how small we are. Verses 5, the second half of verse 5, and into verse 6. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. He views himself here as, uh, as part of mankind, looking at mankind as part of this creation and him being part of mankind. And while, ma- while hu- humanity, when we read Romans, I mean, sorry, Psalm 8, we can see that mankind is the crowning achievement of God's creation. Psalm 8. In which he says, verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? That you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is only mankind that God has created in his image. Only humanity. Which, in my opinion, is a travesty when we speak of ourselves in animal terms. Such as, which man here is the Alpha? Brothers and sisters, we are not dogs. We are humans created in God's image. But while we are indeed the crowning achievement of God's creation, it still states, what is man? What is man? Each of us is but a fleeting speck in light of history, in light of the eternity of God. So thus, we don't have a claim to greatness in and of ourselves. We are still but creatures and are as fleeting as dust. Thus, we have every reason to remember our place. But we might say, But I have rights, don't I? 
when it comes to before God, you and I don't have a single right. We only have duties when it comes to standing before God. Duties and obligations. Christ fulfilled our duties before us. Thus we have the privilege and grace of being able to go before Him. And now we have obligations to live in thankfulness for Him. For the good of our neighbor. So we must recognize, He's asking that we might recognize here how indeed fleeting we are and how much and in so doing we're recognizing our absolute dependence upon the Lord our God. This prayer is actually echoes, most likely, a prayer by someone who came before him in time and in history. Someone who, uh, who, whose life and whose words are recorded in what is, most likely, the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job. Job chapter 7. That is, in terms of when it was written. The book of Genesis and such talks about things that happened before the book of Job. The painting of Job is the oldest. It says, Has not, uh, in Job 7, 1 through 21, has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver. Weavers shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see the good. See good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes... So he who goes down to Sheol shall not, uh, does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. Therefore, I will, not I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not so much of him. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why have you not? Why did you not pardon my transgression and take away my sin, my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. See, Job, Job there is expressing his frustration. He's expressing his anger at the situation. And David is asking, help me to know how actually small I am. Because he does not want to be in that spot. He does not wish to be in that spot. Because remember what happened to Job afterwards. His friends gave him all sorts of wrong-headed advice. And Job, of course, popped. And his friends gave him more bad advice. But then the Lord came to him. And he said, I'm going to tell you a thing. He said, were you there when I? Were you there when I? The answer was no. And This is how small you are. I can do with my creation as I please. And so he's in despair, but he's asking that he might think rightly of himself, that he might not become haughty before the Lord his God. And one thing that keeps us from being haughty, my brothers and sisters, is remembering our neediness, looking to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Keeps, he keeps us from being haughty. It points us to that which is our hope, that which is our, our deliverance and our salvation. In the cross we see how 
that through the death of Jesus Christ, in his weakness, we are redeemed. And it is in our weakness that, he, that we see his strength. And in verses 7 through 11, we now have his prayer of hope where he expresses some hope now. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for a sin, you consume like a moth what is clear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Continuing somewhat in the same vein. But here he expresses some hope. Even in sin, he says, God is his hope. What For what do I wait? He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know what's next. But this one thing he does know. His hope is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who brought him into covenant with himself. We do not know what awaits us, what's coming tomorrow. As much as we try to divine those things, We don't know what tomorrow holds. Yet we obsess ourselves with tomorrow. And we try to, we go to great lengths beyond what is wise and beyond what is prudent to protect ourselves from tomorrow. Recognizing our hope is in Him because at any given moment, all of the devices that we have set up to protect us from tomorrow can go tumbling down. Our hope is in Him. Our hope is in Him. Again, beyond what is wise and prudent. You see, He understands that even though He's weighed down with the guilt of His own failure, He understands the covenant love of God for Him. God is faithful to his covenant. His covenant which he says, I will redeem you. And he demonstrated that faithfulness because Jesus lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead for us. And so we have that covenant love to look to. He understands the covenant love God for him. So he says, my hope is in you. And in so doing, this helps us keep our focus. We often ask, what should I, by, what, by what should I be motivated to keep myself from sin? That's a question pastors ask all the time. With what can I motivate our people to seek to live righteously? One option that's often put out there is that of instilling doubt in God's people. Doubting God's care and love for them. So that they will have the carrot on the stick approach. Well, I don't know, not really so sure, so I, I, you shouldn't be sure of God's love for you, so you need to make sure you're performing. saying things like, yes, well, he has justified you and made you right with him. There's a coming, a judgment at the end of time in which your works will be taken account to determine whether or not you were truly justified. No, my brothers and sisters, what is he being motivated with here? The covenant love of God for him. Our motivation for living for him is this, that God is for us in Christ Jesus. He has redeemed us. I say, but I need someone to, I need some sort of a threat. Is it not perfect love that casts out all fear? And that's simply we do, we seek to live for him, the true motive is simply because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's an act of thankfulness for what he's done for us. Keeping that before us can help us in those moments 
whether it's from speaking rashly or some other temptation that may help us keep our wits about us. Knowing God's care and grace for us in Christ is our motivating factor, brothers and sisters. And in that hope, he, he asks for forgiveness. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. He seeks deliverance from his own sin. He knows his sin and he wishes for deliverance. And this is true when one comes to faith in Christ Jesus, seeking deliverance from the transgressions. We do ourselves a disservice and everyone a disservice when we say this is only about conversion. We as Christians are always falling and failing and we always need the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we put before us, to, just as was put before us today, in the supper of the Lord, when we saw the body and blood of Christ displayed for us, the bread and the wine, we need the gospel, and to say and be able and to go before the Lord, saying, "I am a sinner. Though I be a saint, I am still a sinner, and I need your help." You see, we are both, we are at the same time that we are saints, that we are just and righteous, we are also sinners, and we need that grace. Very recently, was shared with, shared with me some um, uh, songs by a, a Lutheran singer. Um, does it in a hip-hop fashion. It speaks a lot of good theology in those, in those songs, though. One, one of those songs he speaks about is two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness before God that we have that is perfect righteousness that's in Christ Jesus. The other kind of righteousness is the one before men where we seek to live in thankfulness. And we fall far short in that righteousness. Which brings us to the other righteousness we have in Christ Jesus. The hope in that. And there's also, in verse 9, not only the desire for transgression, but also an expression of repentance. He said, I was mute, in verse 2, and silent, until I spoke. Verse 9, he says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. He's expressing repentance. He's expressing, here, I am turning from that thing. I am turning from that. That is the response to God's grace is repentance. Repentance does not get us God's grace. God's grace gets us repentance. And then he asks in verses 10 and 11 for God to lift his hand from him. In the words of remove your stroke from me. He is, he is tired. He is worn out. He's experiencing some sort of expressing his despair in terms of discipline, maybe judgment. He's asking for it to be relieved. Every type of suffering that we experience, any type of difficulty, is, is under God's providence. It may not be its we often want to find some sort of specific sin to which we can look and say, I did this, so this is what's happening to me. But often that's not the case. In this case, David has identified something. But God is always training us. Remember, discipline is not always, is not, is not, not should not be understood only as retributive. That is, you did something bad, so you're getting it spanked. Discipline is also training. Just as those of you who were in the Navy or other branches and went to boot camp, it did, does not matter whether you held up the piece of paper and never dropped it. You were going to do push-ups. Because it was training. And he's asking for it to be relieved. And again, this is language of dependence. This is, if you will, a declaration of dependence in this prayer. 
in which he says, remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility uh, of your hand. When you discipline, discipline a man with rebukes for a sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. If it were God were not to relent, he would fall and fall and fall. And he's expressing his neediness of God's help. And in, in his closing words in verses 12 and 13, he asks for closure. In which he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. We do not have a clear, as mentioned earlier, resolution in the psalm in which we have a sense of closure. He's asking for closure, but we don't have a sense of closure. That's because we see the sense of closure in the next psalm. But in this psalm, we don't have the sense of closure. We have him asking for it. So often in the Christian life, we ask for something. And we don't see closure right away. We have to wait sometimes our whole lives. But in all that, God is gracious and merciful because he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we often get so caught up in the moment in which we are in that we forget about eternity. And that which is really ours. And that which is our true hope. For we have no lasting city here. We don't have a homeland here. Hebrews chapter 11, 12, 13. He seeks God's mercy and grace for him to hear him. He, he acknowledges himself as a sojourner with God, a guest. That is, he doesn't have a sense of entitlement before the Lord, but is casting himself entirely upon the grace of God, understanding that this life is not permanent, but one of a sojourn. He's traveling with the Lord. In his travels, he's traveling as, as a sojourner with the Lord. And he closes with the words, look away from me. I say, why would he want the Lord to look away from him? It has to do with the sense of his despair and the sense of what he is experiencing. He understands there is not a single thing that happens in which God's hand is not present. And he's saying, lift your hand from me. Lift your hand that I might find joy in you. Very similar to the depth of despair in Job's prayer. But he understands, as previously stated, this is found in God's grace that is in that would come in Christ Jesus and that has come to us. He wants his grief to end. John Calvin says, Although David endeavored carefully to restrain the desires of the flesh, yet these occasioned him so much disquietude and trouble that they forced him to exceed the proper limits in his grief. That in his severe despair and despondency in this situation, he is seeing this as God's hand of training or discipline upon him. We often look at God's training and discipline primarily in terms of some sort of material or physical calamity. A bank account gets emptied or, or dear loved one dies. We often look at it primarily in, in those terms. God's training and discipline also, also comes in the form of despair and despondency and grief. Which brings us to look to Him. And again, just because we are despairing of some sort does not mean there's some sort of sin for which we are being punished but rather it's a matter of pointing us to Christ. Recognizing even if that despair doesn't go away, doesn't mean God's grace is not there. 
we must be very careful to not get caught up into a very subtle form of prosperity theology. You say, well, that's helpful well to prosperity, but you know, I should never—if if I'm trusting the Lord and praying to Him and I'm doing things right—I should never have despair or despondency. And if I'm in despair and despondency, there's something clearly wrong with my prayer and my Bible reading and my and my trusting the Lord, brothers and sisters. That is prosperity gospel. It's saying, I don't have enough faith. He is seeking that this might be removed. But knowing, like Paul, God's grace is sufficient for him. We must recognize that. So, brothers and sisters, in closing, while we have failed, just as David has failed and did fail, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus the righteous, who suffered in silence on our behalf. Thus we in love are called to not return evil for evil or reproach for reproach. And when we fail, our guilt may get the best of us. Let us return to the Lord and seek His care, casting our guilt upon Him. Remembering where our solace, where our salve is. There's only one salve for our guilt. And it is our Lord Christ. Who is the basis by which David could cry. Deliver me from my transgressions. And it is this same Christ to whom we invite our proverbial neighbor. To come and join us. Let us pray. Our Father, blessed be your name. For even in the guilt and weighing down of our sin, sometimes we are more aware of it than other other times. We have an advocate before the before you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to run to him and trust him. Help us to proclaim him. We ask, O Lord that we would be open and bare before you in our troubles, in our struggles. That we would not try to hide from you. Because, O oh Lord, there is no hiding from you. Help us, O oh Lord, that we might walk in gratefulness and Keep our eyes upon the grace that's in you in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.